You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Gary Wirtz, a cataract and refractive surgeon with Commonwealth Eye Surgery in Lexington, Kentucky. And today I'll be your guest moderator for this episode of CRST, the podcast. This month, we're discussing a few articles from the March issue, and we're really going to be talking about what happens when surgeons and our skills are matched with our empathy to take care of patients who are maybe a little bit on the outskirts of what we normally would do. Um, Today, I'm going to be talking about my article where I'm uh, actually discussing using the FDA's compassionate use uh, device exemption to take care of a colleague of mine. I'm also joined today by fellow issue contributors, Dr. Dr. Lance Kugler. Uh, who wrote about his experience providing vision correction to individuals who are unable to use their arms or hands, and Dr. D. Stevenson, who discussed her work with Alliance Club to, to uh, further focus on eye care in her community. So Lance and Dee, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, why don't you guys just go ahead and briefly introduce yourselves. We'll start with Dee and then we'll go with Lance. Hi, Gary. It's always great to be with you, my friend. Um, I'm in practice in Venice, Florida. I'm a cataract refractive surgeon. I do about 96, 97% premiums, but I also do a lot of community service, which uh, is the lead into my article with the Lions Club. Lance, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a real honor. Uh, I'm a refractive surgeon in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's a pleasure to be here. So, um, D, you and I have have uh, known each other for quite some time. Lance, you, you and I were just talking uh, previous to this. We feel like our, our Venn diagram of overlapping uh, colleagues and experience, uh, we, we've got that a big overlap. This is kind of our first time really getting a chance to dialogue. And I'm, I'm really excited about uh, the opportunity. And D, you know, we're not supposed to have favorites. Maybe we're not supposed to talk about our favorites, but you know, you're one of my favorites. So uh, it's always uh, a pleasure to have you on. And I can't wait for you to tell your story, uh, both of you. I think you guys have some of the most interesting um, articles uh, that I've read in, in quite some time. And I'm super excited for you guys to get to share them. Um, I'm actually more excited about you sharing your articles than I am about mine. But uh, they wanted me to, to, to sort of summarize my uh, experience as well. So um, I'll go ahead and do that. Um, it's interesting when you have those patients who are, they just don't fit into one category. Um, you know, I, I had a patient who is a referring optometrist who came and, um, he had about eight and a half to nine diopters of regular, highly regular astigmatism, 45 years old. And uh, his corneal pachymetries were about 460 in both eyes. And, you know, we, we do a pentacam on him. His D values are off. I think they're totally thrown off just because the, the normative tables, you know, do not even apply to him. But, you know, it was going to be a pretty, you know, pretty deep ablation on a thin cornea with a eye that, you know, we're not really sure how it's going to respond. And so, you know, he really was seeking some sort of refractive option. I thought a, a refractive lensectomy was likely going to be uh, his best choice. Um, I'm curious, Lance, when you have patients who are outside of those norms, uh, you know, how do you approach it? Do you do bioptics? Do you do arcs and torics? What do you, or do you stack torics? What do you, have you had patients like that that you've had to scratch your head on before? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think all those things are options. And I, I think probably the majority of them can be handled with bioptics, right? There, there's not too often that you have 
somebody with regular astigmatism that is so far beyond what you can do with, you know, a toric plus LASIK or plus corneal procedure or vice versa. Um, but they are out there. And so, yes, yeah, we all, we all struggle with those. Yeah. And D with a, with a patient who has a corneal pachymetry in the four sixties and nine diopters of astigmatism, a steep K beyond like around 52, you know, you're probably not going to want to touch them much with the laser if at all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you, you know, the thing is what's so wonderful about our, um, subspecialty of ophthalmology is we do have experts like Lance who do do this kind of thing probably more often than some of us, than me, for instance. And it's nice that we have, uh, you know, these incredible colleagues that have other options than are, you know, that as you always are good at, Gary, out, thinking outside the box. And this is one of those incredible cases that, you know, you made a difference in a guy's life by going the extra mile. And that calculation um, or that website that you look at the different lenses, it, it's a pretty cool website. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so I love the idea of the hive mind of ophthalmology. And uh, I th it's interesting, whenever we talk to, um, you know, people in the industry who've been maybe in other specialties, they always comment about how collegial ophthalmologists are with each other. And I think as long as we're at least 60 miles away from each other, that's very true. Um, so, but it is really nice to, uh, be able to, you know, ask, I say phone a friend, you know, tap into the hive mind. And in this situation, um, I, I just sort of put this question up to the Cedars Aspens group and said, Hey, what would, what would, what would y'all do? Has anyone, you know, done something like this? And, you know, Tal Raviv just, he's, he's, uh, he's my buddy, he's my guy. And he just emailed back with this link to, uh, this European IOL site and it, it um, the link is actually in the article. It's something like IOLs.eu. Uh, that may not be quite right, but that's something like that. And it basically lists every IOL available through Europe. And on this website, I found this company called v VSY Biotechnology. No financial interest, of course, but they will basically custom make IOLs up to ten diopters to treat up to ten diopters of corneal astigmatism. So. I basically talked to my friend who is an optometrist, the patient who's the optometrist and about this lens. We looked at it together, discussed other options. This really seemed like the best idea. We thought about maybe stacking a couple of toric lenses in, in the bag, talked about doing arcs and maybe, you know, a combination. This just seemed like if we could get one device in the eye, uh, that would be fantastic. So long story short, we went through the compassionate use process um, with the FDA. That took us about six months. Um, in a, if anyone would like to hear more about that or, um, you know, hear about how to shepherd through that, please contact me by email. Um, I'm, I have some documents I can share, but essentially the, the process goes like this. If you have a device that you'd like to use, you have to first talk to the manufacturer and say, if I can get this approved through the expanded access or compassionate use exemption with the FDA, will you provide that to me? Because you don't want to get through the end of the process and the company say, no, we don't feel comfortable with that. So the first step is actually contacting the company, making sure that they will actually provide the device. They were fantastic. They said yes. The second thing is you have to figure out, is this current device currently in a trial somewhere in the United States? If so, the patient actually has to enroll in that trial. And uh, that's the only, or you have to either become a site and enroll them at your site or send them to a, a site where the device is being studied. In this situation, the device was not being investigated. 
So it actually kind of made it easier. So from that point forward, there's an application process where you basically just go through your reasoning why you feel like this device is appropriate. You talk about the risks and benefits of the device. You talk about other procedures that you've considered and why they necessarily wouldn't work in this situation, why LASIK was not a good option, potentially PRK and other um, refractive lenses were not quite going to work for him. And then you also have to send the patient to an independent ophthalmologist not affiliated with your practice to get a second opinion. And that second opinion goes into the dossier that you submit to the FDA. In that also is a customized, you have to create sort of a customized uh, informed consent process that uh, the FDA has got to look at and make sure that the patient really understands what they're getting themselves into. Um, so we basically took about six months, gathered all this stuff. There was some dialogue back and forth with the FDA because I just had some questions. I'd never been through this process before. But eventually, you know, we got the, the green light. And, you know, surgically, as you can imagine, inserting a toric lens is really not that hard to do. This was no different. Uh, we did use the Lensar uh, IntelliAxis, uh, which I felt really, really great about because I wanted to make sure that the axis was absolutely <laughs> nailed. Um, it was also a plate style lens, and I'd used some star plate haptic lenses, uh, the old school first ever toric lenses. And I remember, you know, they had a tendency to rotate. So I went ahead and put in a CTR just prophylactically to act as a break inside the bag. And, you know, we got a great result. We, we sort of did a monovision goal. We ended up pretty close. Um, one thing I'll say, though, is his, in, his um, astigmatism was with the rule. I operate against the rule at basically zero and 180. At a month, he actually had a two diopter flattening in the opposite meridian from where my incision was. It's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Uh, I, my, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. If so, please speak up. But my theory is this cornea had so much tension on it that any incision anywhere on the globe was going to actually cause some, some flattening effect or maybe even a little bit of a widening of his white to white just based on the, the, the tectonic plates of what was, you know, where, where the tension was. So he's actually had about a two diopter overcorrection. We're sort of thinking about what we want to do for that. But the coolest thing is he's pretty well functional without glasses, about 2030, 2040 uncorrected in both eyes. Best corrected now with a light prescription. He's 2015 and 2020, so actually gained two lines of vision. Uh, best corrected uh, from from previous, and he's you know he's got his life back. And as an optometrist, it was always I think a little bit um, you know he's like seeing how he's helping other people with their vision, and always thinking like well, why can't I see as well as I'm helping other people? Um, and he's a fantastic doctor. I love working with him. You know, he doesn't live in my town. He lives about 30, 45 minutes away. So I, I see some patients occasionally from him as well. And, you know, this is just an example of, you know, sometimes you just have to go the extra mile and, you know, find a creative solution to a situation that is not straightforward. And it's worked out great. And uh, honestly, for me, it, it's sort of opened up things if I have patients who have um, additional needs and I have access to, you know, different devices around the world it's kind of nice to know how to go through that process. So um, Lance D, I'd love to hear if, if you have any comments on that, like what your, what your thoughts are. Um, it's just kind of an interesting case, I think. Yeah. How long did you wait in between his eyes? So we actually waited about two weeks in between eyes. Um, I, I ordered two lenses of, of, 
you know, basically duplicate lenses for each eye, just in case a lens scratched, you know, going in or tore or something, you know, it's, I didn't want to leave them a fake for six months waiting for another lens to come from Europe or how, however long it was going to take. So I, I ordered duplicate lenses, but it wasn't like I had a range of power. So it, it could have been the next day. I was going to have to implant the lens I ordered pretty much. So, but I think as I recall, we, we waited about two weeks. The axis flipping like that, uh, you know, the flattening, I, I mean, you would make, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense, effective lens position and everything, you know, because none of this is on the bell curve. So Lance, how about you? Have you ever had a case like this or, or what do you, what do you think about this case? Well, it's a fascinating case. And I think what I'm impressed with is the effort that you went through to get this product for your patient. Right. So I think, um, what I'm struck by is, you know, the, the challenge that we have to do this for a patient and, you know, when it's, when it's somebody, it's an optometrist, they're kind of keyed into the system. They're, they're willing to be patient. They understand what their eyes like. You're willing to do the work, um, that kind of thing. But in the reality is it's, it's, it's a real barrier to deliver this technology to a, a wide range of people. And when you think about it, it isn't like this is some crazy idea. It's just a, you know, it's an extension of a toric IOL range that we already have. So this is not something that ought to be this difficult to do, right? That That's my first thought is like, this is, this was not something that should be this difficult. Um, so fortunately, these patients are, are relatively rare, but I think the, the tendency in a busy surgery practice is you see a patient like this come through and you think to yourself, am I going to spend six months in a process to get a lens or am I, you know, am I just going to say to this nice person, you know, you're not a good candidate for the surgery based on the technology we have available. And I think most people probably default to that um, for all the reasons that you said, but I think what you've proven is what a difference you can make in that one person's life. who's never going to have eye surgery again, if you do go through the extra work. So that's a really rewarding story. Yeah. And I think it would be awesome if there was a way that we could make it easier for our colleagues to get access to products like this. I mean, the reality is there, a company who makes a product that is only going to service 0.001% of the population, it's never going to be economical for them to go through an FDA process. It just isn't. But those patients exist. So maybe it would be possible to create a, a faster or more streamlined process for those, you know, boutique patients who need something like this. Um, that's just, that's just one off the wall idea, but uh, it can, it can be really, really helpful to patients like, like we've discussed. Dee, I think I'm going to have you, if you don't mind, uh, summarize uh, your, your article that, um, that I loved reading about uh, your experience with the Lions Club. If you're, if you're, willing. Sure. Well, first of all, um, you know, if you think about the Lions Club, Lions Clubs International, they were um, founded in 1917 by uh, a businessman from Chicago named Melvin Jones, who just happened to be a, 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 a gentleman that just thought it would be a nice thing to get a group of people to get a group of businessmen together. And he founded the Association of, of Lions Clubs. And in the international meeting in Windsor, Canada in the 1920s, Helen Keller was the keynote speaker and she donned the Lions Club as the Knights of Vision. So 
uh, it was kind of cool that, that, you know, Knights of the Blind and a crusade against darkness. And as we all know, Helen Keller became a, a, a inspiration to so many. And in, you know, this was, it's the largest service club in the, in the world. Um, there's 1.4 million members in over 200 countries. So it's not a small um, thing to, to be involved with a Lions Club. And Gary, there's a big Lions Club in your community. And in my community, um, it, our, our chapter was founded in 1947. And it wasn't until the 1985, we were um, given a lot, bequest, bequested a lot of money from a, a local um, philanthropist. And he and his wife left all this money to vision, just to vision. And um, in 1987, we built a huge eye clinic and we serve all kinds of, of, of patients with, with hearing and vision problems, uh, cataracts, glaucoma, retinal disease, a strabismus. We do clinics in the, in the schools. And uh, locally, we do a monthly clinic that um, there's about now about four or five um, ophthalmologists left that do it. There were about 12 of us at one time. A lot of these folks have retired and a lot of folks don't get involved in their community unless it's going to pay them, um, unless they get big advertisement. And this is something that you get personal advertisement with, but not a, is not on the grand scheme of things, you know, advertisement. So, you know, um, the health park was built in 1993 and, and this is when we really uh, started doing our, our clinic. And I was the first female president in 1995. And in fact, the only pregnant female president and uh, I gave birth to my daughter in July and my, my pregnancy or my presidency ended in June. But the beauty of this program is that every month a doctor goes and um, we're, we either schedule them with optometrists if they just have a refractive error or we schedule them with um, either whatever doctor goes is the doctor that is the particular doctor that takes that patient to surgery if the patient is needed, if the surgery is needed. So this has been something that I have done over the last, going on my 32nd year with the Lions Club. And, you know, I've probably performed about 3,000 cataracts for the Lions Club alone. And, of course, you know, this is, there's a, a, a certain geographic area that these uh, patients are pulled from. And then they have to fit a criteria, um, you know, to be able to be given free health care. And we have you know, gotten the anesthesiologists and um, some of the lens companies will give us, you know, reduced rates. But we as the ophthalmologist, we do it for free. The first five are free. And then after that, we get paid, you know, um, a, a nominal amount. But it's so worthwhile because through that, what's really nice, for instance, my patient, she was a high myope and, you know, she was essentially count fingers. She couldn't do much of anything. She was a waitress. She was having a hard time, uh, you know, being able to figure out her bills, um, you know, the checks for the patients. And she was very, very, you know, flipped out. And she didn't know what to do. And a friend of hers mentioned, hey, you need to maybe see if the Lions Club would help you out. And so she did. She came in and, and you know, she had had a family member die and and really couldn't afford it. She took care of that family member, but but uh, but didn't take care of herself. So it ended up being that I took her cataracts out and, and she's now 20, 20 and with nothing, she wears reading glasses 
and she has gotten another couple jobs. People watch her smile now. People feel like she's, um, you know, having, I mean, just, she it's changed her world. She came into my office and she was dressed so nicely and she cares about what she looks like because now she can see. And it's, it, it's really rewarding. And, you know, I feel like the return of my investment, um, you know, in the time spent with these patients gives me such a return in my investment in the, my community and with just doing the right thing by patients. And usually it's something as easy as a cataract without a lot of pathology, but we do see a lot of pathology. So this has just been a very rewarding 32 years of volunteering with the Lions Club. I just think that's beautiful, Dee. I think it's a wonderful testament to who you are and, and what you mean to so many people, but I'm sure you know, even more so in your community. Um, you know, we, I think locally, um, there are different programs that exist, but it's nice to, to hear about the Lions Club. I feel like it's a, um, I guess to me, it's, it's sort of a, um, huge, you know, organization that's been around forever. And in my mind, it was more about providing glasses or vision screenings for, um, people, which fell more, uh, on the optometry side. Um, at least my experience has been that. It's really nice to know, though, that in your community, the Lions Club is actually involved in the surgical aspects of of um, of patients' care. A lot of them in Florida are um, involved with, you know, the surgical part of it. We have the Lions Eye Bank in Tampa that is involved with surgery, corneal transplants, uh, glaucoma surgeries, uh, patch grafts. The um, the Lions Club in in in. Uh, and uh, at Baskin Palmer. So all of these are, are really large uh, eye banks that do a lot with our Lions Clubs throughout the state of Florida. And it is very, ours is very unusual because we had a large, I mean, like several million dollars now that has been, and we keep, we've never touched really the principal much of anything. We've just kept raising money. So it's there to spend on eye care. So we do it. That's awesome. Um, my partner, uh, Lance Ferguson, uh, and I have started a, um, a similar program for the uninsured here in Lexington, where we take care of people who have cataracts, but no way of paying for it. Uh, but maybe it would be good for us to reach out to the Lions Club to see if they have, um, you know, some overlapping needs that we can help with. So thank you for bringing attention to the Lions Club um, and the great work they do and, and for all you have done for ophthalmology and especially in your community. Um, Lance, I'd love to hear, I, I'm so, I'm so curious to hear about, um, you know, your experience. I won't, I won't spoil it because uh, there's a lot of little interesting things in here, but we, we tell us a little bit about your article and, and just summarize it for a few minutes. So what I wrote about was a program called focus on independence. And it's a program that started long before I was a refractive surgeon. So, um, some guys, uh, who a lot of them didn't want to be named in the article, but I, I did talk to Dan Dury about it because he was one of the original guys that started it. And he and I, he, he's the one that got me kind of interested in it several years ago. Um, Dan and some other guys back, oh gosh, about 10 or 15, well, about 15 or 20 years ago now, um, started this program called Focus on Independence. And the concept was to provide refractive surgery to people who, could not use glasses or contacts effectively because they had a disability that they, that they couldn't use their hands uh, 
correctly. So primarily spinal cord injury, quadriplegic, uh, that sort of thing. And they didn't have any strict criteria to what that definition was. It was just a very broad definition where you couldn't wear glasses or contacts. And so you could have refractive surgery. And it's a very informal group. This is not, there, there's not a 501c3 or any sort of central authority. It's simply a group of people who have agreed to do this. And anyone can do it. And you, what you do is you find somebody who meets this criteria and then you uh, offer to do refractive surgery at no charge. It's self-funded. There's no funding that pays for it. You just do it yourself and and you cover whatever fees are associated with it in your practice. And the industry doesn't pay for it or the laser companies aren't involved, anything like that. It's very simple. And so we got interested in this. Um, actually, a patient reached out to us at my practice um, a little over 10 years ago. This was probably 12 or 13 years ago. And um, his sister actually reached out to us. And this was a guy who, um, it's a terrible story, but he had a, an injury to his brainstem. Um, in a, he was uh, assaulted and, and ended up um, paralyzed from um, just above C1 all the way down. So he couldn't talk or anything, um, but he could use his eyes. And, but full brain capacity, full mental capacity other than movement. And so he could communicate with his eyes and he had a device that would use eye tracking so that he could move a cursor on a screen and communicate that way with this, with a either typing or with speech synthesis. And because he was a minus nine myob, um, his thick glasses were not able to uh, allow the tracker to work appropriately so he could communicate. So, and, then, and this had become a, a worsening problem over the years. As this technology became more and more useful to him, his, his ability to, to use it with the tracking became more of a problem. So his sister was reaching out to people to see if anyone would be able to help him. And so we, we uh, did an evaluation and determined that um, LASIK would be a good option for him. And we went through the process and did that. And we did it as part of this Focus on Independence uh, group. And so that was our first kind of for foray into it. And um, everyone here at the practice was so, you know, engaged in that. It was so rewarding for everyone here to be part of that, that we started doing it on a, on a regular basis or semi-regular basis where, um, you know, we would, we would do patients like this as they either came up or uh, we're actually, our office is next door to Madonna Rehabilitation Hospital, which is a, a um, fairly well-known rehabilitation hospital in the country for spinal cord injury. And so because of the proximity, we had a, some people over there who had good experiences and they would tell other people. And, and so they, um, for a while there, we were seeing quite a few patients from, from Madonna. So all of that led to this program or being part of this program where we do that. And so um, that's kind of the basis of it. And, and so that was what the article is about. I think that's amazing. Um, and I even love the way you, you sort of pitched or, or presented this as, you know, we think of LASIK and PRK or, or lens replacement surgery as sort of a premium just for patients who are, are tired or annoyed with glasses and who can afford it. But 
there are some real functional issues that people can have and LASIK or refractive surgery uh, can be very helpful to people in their daily functional life. It's, it's not just a luxury. Um, you know, during the past couple of years, uh, as the LASIK boom has sort of, I guess, re-blossomed or whatever you want to say, the, the volume has really taken off. One thing I ask my patients is, I assume, you know, you've probably wanted to do LASIK for a while. What is the, what made you decide to finally do it? Because I'm just curious to hear what they have to say. Most people will say something along the lines of, well, you know, I had a little more money in my pocket. We didn't take that vacation. I had a little more time on my hands. I thought I'd just go ahead and do it. But this one day, a patient said, and I honestly wasn't kind of prepared for this. She goes, our house was on fire. <clears throat> I couldn't find my glasses and I had to get my children out of our home. And after I got our kids out of the house, I said, never again, I'm getting LASIK. And I almost like, it almost like caught, it caught me off guard. And I was like, well, yeah. my gosh, you know, thank you for telling me that. That's a, puts a different perspective on our vision in terms of how valuable it is. This is not just a boutique thing that we do. This yeah. changes people's lives. And I think the more stories we hear about patients like what you've shared, Lance, um, you know, D also just the way you, you change someone's life by what you did. Um, I just, it, it gives me chills and I really appreciate, you know, having colleagues like you all. Um, this is a great profession that we're in. And uh, also just want to give a shout out to uh, CRST for putting the focus um, on surgeons who are out there making a difference in their communities. So uh, you all, thank you so much for coming on this, uh, this podcast. And um, yeah, if you're in your local community, check out the uh, your local Lions Club. I think that's a great thing we should all be uh, checking out. Uh, Dee, thanks again for, for bringing that to our attention. And uh, Lance, I'm going to start looking for patients out there who have these issues. And uh, yeah, I would be excited to help someone who, uh, who we could in that way. So with that being said, thank you so much for coming on, both of you, and uh, look forward to talking to you again both soon. For more on the articles discussed in this episode and to read the rest of CRST's March issue on Acts of Compassion, go to crstoday.com. And for more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.